do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film On the Waterfront from 1954 with my very fun guest, Andre Fonseca. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and this week on the show, I have my wonderful guest, Andre Fonseca. Andre, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Sarah. This week, we watched the, I would say, like, epic. It's an epic film on the waterfront from 1954. Andre, your thoughts? I loved rewatching it. I hadn't seen it since I was in high school. Uh, we watched it in our high school cinematography class which I was fortunate enough to have a high school cinematography class in Miami, Florida, of all places. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the performances hit me a lot harder as an older man, and, and I thought that there was a lot of relevant topics. I chose this movie because I remembered loving it. Like, when I, I watched it when I was younger. It wasn't a movie that I watched a lot of. Like, some of the movies I pick for this, I've seen a lot. And this isn't a movie that I've seen a lot, but I remember watching it thinking it was very important, loving it. And so I was like, yeah, let's bring it back. I want to, you know, get into this movie. I want to see Marlon Brando, all of it. And I really was, as an older person watching it now, I was deeply affected by it in such a different way than I was when I was younger. It was shocking to me because like what you said, it's so relevant to our current political climate in general. Yeah, so that was all hitting me. Um, And then... Well, we'll get into the Brando stuff in a little bit. You mean to tell me your family wasn't just like, hey, it's Saturday. Let's throw on On the Waterfront. It wasn't like a weekly. Shocking. (laughs) I know. Well, we're laughing, but like I was the weirdo that was watching all these movies. So it would have been like me being like, family, I have rented this film. You must suffer. Even as a film for, what was it? Was it 1954? 1954, which is, by the way, a great year for cinema. If you look at the years of the movies I've done in this podcast, it's all like 1939, 1954, and then another great year is 1967. So those are like three excellent years for movies where just like so many cool things came out. Oh my God. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And 39 was a great year for movies. But like, but I would think that on the waterfront, in if I'm watching this in 1954, to me, and this is not like the best analogy, but so pardon me, you can edit it out later. But like, <laughs> is it like, is it like watching Requiem for a Dream? Like it's 2000 where you're just like, oh God, that was a good movie, but I don't know if I want to watch that again. 
Like probably you know, it's for the time they were saying, I think the critics said like it's brutal, it's a brutally violent film, but with romance and yeah, for the day it probably would have been considered more violent than what we're used to now or more intense than what we're used to now. But yeah, it's it's a really beautiful film, like really well made. Uh, the script is great. The cinematography is great. I cannot believe you had a cinematography class in high school. I would have geeked out all over that. I wish they had that at my high school. Um, I feel like they had like lacrosse class at my high school. So really. Well, the lacrosse teacher taught my cinematography class at that city's consolation. Um, also that makes it sound like I went to a fancy school. I didn't go to a fancy school. I just could only think of lacrosse. Okay. So the plot synopsis. So. On the Waterfront, 1954. It's about longshoremen, which I still don't actually know really what a longshoreman is. I know from this movie that they have a hook, and I'm like, what? I don't get what the hook is for. Is it for the ropes? You get the ropes with the hook, and you pull goods down from a ship? Is that what they're doing? They're the muscle. They're the people who are loading and unloading things off of the dock. And, and they kind of have to have these like sort of tools for all types of cargo, right? Like, I guess their favorite type of cargo is that whiskey. So on the waterfront, they are on the waterfront. A lot of these men are longshoremen. In the beginning of the film, we see, well, we see this like, what is it even called? It's like the dock office where it's like supposed to be, it's like the union, right? The union office. And we see men leaving it and they're all in their fancy jackets, which is another thing we're going to get into. Marlon Brando leaves with like something in his shirt. And you're like, what the hell is in your shirt, Marlon Brando? And audience, guess what? It's a pigeon. And it's part of a setup to kill this guy, Joey, except Brando doesn't know that they're going to kill Joey. So Brando goes to Joey's place. He's like, hey, Joey. And Joey's like, hi. He's like, hey, I got your pigeon because you lost this pigeon and you have lots of pigeons. And so Joey's like, well, okay, come on up to the roof. We'll put the pigeon away. Except you guys, waiting on the roof are two mugs. They're two mobsters. And Marlon Brando is like, you know what? I think they're just going to rough him up. But you know what they do? They kill him. And Joey was a beloved person in this community. And it's a bummer. And Joey's sister just happens to be in town while this is happening. And it's Eva Marie Saint. And she is very beautiful and very lovely. And her and Marlon Brando do indeed spark a romance. Which is nice, you know. So anyway, this death happens. The guilt and the weight of Marlon Brando's role in it is just killing him. And he starts to kind of realize the company he has been keeping, which is like this fake union, which is actually just the mob who is ruining everyone's lives and essentially putting everyone in really harsh poverty. He's realizing like, maybe I don't want to do this anymore. And there's this crime investigator who's investigating Joey's death and who like wants to shut these guys down. Maybe I should be an informant. And after many mis misfortunes among people who have tried to speak up, basically that if you try to speak up, you're killed. Uh, Marlon Brando eventually does testify against these people. His community ostracizes him, which does not make sense to me because if you were all about Joey being an informant, why are you against Marlon Brando being an informant? That doesn't make sense. But they're scared. They're rather, you know, they don't want to rock the apple cart. I guess that's true, but it's like he, Marlon Brando's going to put these guys in jail so they can't run your shit anymore. But also, why the double standard of Joey versus Brando, you know? Because they all liked Joey. Because he's a bum. Because they think Brando's a bum. I know, but it's like the informant thing. Like, they're so mad at him for being a canary. And I was like, Joey was a canary. He was about to be a canary, and you all loved him. Riddle me that. That's true. Good point. Oh, and I forgot to mention the most important thing. So, 
Marlon Brando was like a prize fighter. Like he was about to be the next big thing in boxing. And one day his brother comes to him. He's got an older brother played by Rod Steiger, who is actually one year younger than him when they filmed this. Wow. When you see him, you're like, Rod Steiger, is that you? I can't because we all know him as an older man. He was a prize fighter. He was going to make it. His brother was like, hey, uh, you know how this guy, Johnny Friendly, who's our crime boss and who's the head of the whole thing? Well, uh, tonight he wants you to lose, so you're going to lose. And so Brando like knew he could have won this fight, and he has to lose the fight, and it just ruins him. Like It ruins his career. It ruins his heart and soul. And he's got the big famous line of, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. It's heartbreaking. I could have been somebody. So it's, we have all that. Um, his brother ends up sacrificing his life basically for Marlon Brando. So Marlon Brando can get out and get away from the mob. Marlon Brando testifies. And then he gets the shit kicked out of him by the mob. And they can't kill him because they're being like investigated now. So they're like, well, if he dies, we'll be implicated. So we're just going to beat the shit out of him. In front of everybody. In front of everybody. Who, who do, they don't help. They just, they're like, there's hundreds of us. Let's just watch. They're like, hey, are we going to stand for that? There's just a lot of that throughout the entire movie. Like, hey, are we going to do something? No. It was a very small surface, though, because it was on the waterfront, and it's just this tiny little deck that they're fighting on, and you're like, how are they not all in the water? It was very narrow. Very narrow. They could not have all fit. Um, at least they did not have guns. I was grateful for that part, because he would have, you know, been killed by guns at that point. Um, but anyway, the whole thing is, the workers are like, look, we're not going to work unless Terry Malloy, who is Marlon Brando, which is also funny because a couple weeks ago we did an affair to remember and her name is Terry McKay. And so all I can think of now is like Terry Malloy, Terry McKay, are they the same? It's great. I would like to see their roles switched in each film. Um, anyway, so Terry Malloy, he's all beaten up. He can barely stand and he has to walk onto the ship to get to work so that all the other men can work and they can form a new union without the mob. And he does it. And the last line of the whole film is, all right, let's go to work. And that's the last line of the film. And then there's like epic music by Leonard Bernstein. The score is wonderful, but also maddeningly like intrusive in certain scenes. I feel like every scene with Brando and even Marie Saint has like this crazy like score in the background. It's like, oh my God, like what am I supposed to think here? But then there's like these moments of beauty, like especially at the end where it's just like, oh my God, how rousing. I totally forgot that he that he did the score, but I was like, it turns like very like excited about it. And then I was like, oh, Lenny, what's going on? Like, you know, cool it down a little bit. It definitely suits the movie, but you're right. There were times when I was noticing the score, especially between the more intimate moments, because us as modern moviegoers, we're so used to very subtle music or sounds in the background or no music or sounds in the background. So yeah, this time there were definite moments. You're right. I was thinking that, but then sometimes it just fits so perfectly. Like that driving song that they would have when shit was going to go down or things were going to get real or it was going to be intense. I was like, Ooh, I'm, I'm liking this. It was better more than it wasn't good. And it's like hauntingly beautiful. It was haunting. I thought I think haunting is a wonderful word for it, but just tone it down when they're when they're together. At least let me let me hear the male and female lead as they're trying to you know meet cute at the bar. So I have this thing where I'm like, let's put the 2021 lens on it. We're like, how does this shit fly today? And in the bar scene specifically, I was like, can you stop putting things in her mouth and trying to pour drinks down her throat, please? Can you please stop with that, Marlon Brando? 
and she had never had a, a drink before <laughs> or she says right she, so so he's like let's go get a beer and then he had, he actually ends up ordering a beer and a shot yes <laughs> and he's like this is how you take a shot and i was like thanks for mansplaining this to all of us marlin my god if she wants to sip her shot, let her sip her shot. But yeah, when he takes the beer and puts it down her gullet, I was like, stop it. She liked it, though. Well, she didn't dislike it. I don't think she was crazy about it. She wasn't crazy about it, but she didn't like, you know, you know, when people in movies, like take that first sip of alcohol and they're like, they wince. It's all, it's almost like, it, well, it's not almost, it is cliche. So I was pleasantly surprised to see that she kind of took the first sip like a champ and she was just like, ah, no big deal. But then, you know, he's like, come on, everything's okay. Have some beer. And she's like, her face is on the table. And he's like, kind of like pouring the beer in her face. And when he takes the gum, he's like, do you want gum? And he like tries to shove it into her mouth. And I'm like, please just stop shoving things in her mouth. This is not okay, Marlon. She didn't say yes. Grimy hands are all over the gum. They're both rough around the edges. She's coming out of like the nunnery, right? Or she's yeah, she's going, she's to, going to nun college, college taught by nuns. She's not really like hanging out with guys. They kind of have this instant attraction, which I think is the, a, another really cool thing about the movie is that they don't try to go into like why these two are attracted to to each other too much. I think they like they're naturally together. They're they're drawn together by a circumstance. I think they do kind of explain where they're together just in that scene where she's got the cat. And in one line, the dad's like, you're always bringing home those messed up animals, the ones with the six toes. He mentions her like love of scrappy animals. And she says he looks like an animal. You know, she, she sees his eyes and it's something about his eyes. So you do, you get their connection. I learned uh, when preparing for this that Eva Marie Saint was given different direction than Marlon Brando was. They, they, he would separate them and say like, okay, in this scene, this is what you're trying to do. Don't let him in. You're not gonna let him in. So he'd kind of put these extra layers on things for her and then he'd do the same for Brando. And she said she felt off center the whole movie because of Brando's presence and whatever Kazan told him to do was like so opposite from her that she was like, I always felt off center, but I think that's what's so beautiful about it. You can see that almost. You can see her recalibrating all the time. She has a strong sense of self, but there's constant recalibration happening for her of like, what am I comfortable with? Am I comfortable with this? I've never been in this situation before. What's this? What's that? You can kind of see all of that happening for her. I feel like she's always got a sense of panic around him too. Like not always, but she's always like fleeing him or like there's always some sort of turmoil. You can see that on her face. He's like, don't let him in at any cost. And then Marlon Brando breaks in. What do you do? What do you do in that scene when your instruction was, you know, dismantled? How do you handle it? I would have said cut. I didn't sign up for this. But yes, their chemistry is great. I do want to say this thing about Marlon Brando though, this vibe that I get from him which is, I can't quite put my finger on it because he's so exciting to watch. And maybe it's the characters that he plays or the way he plays them. But to me, he kind of feels like this out of control wild card that's a bit reckless. And so when you're watching him on screen, I don't know that you always feel safe with him. Like there's something about him that you don't totally trust. But you like him, but you're like, I don't trust you. It's like a weird mix. Or maybe trust isn't the right word. I also feel like he's a little bit selfish as an actor. Because for me, it's about him lighting up. He's like, I gotta be as real as possible. But he's not necessarily thinking about the other person. He's just thinking about what am I gonna do. And it makes for these incredible performances. But at the same time, I don't know. It would be nice if you felt more... 
Like it wasn't just all about him. If it was more of a give and take. Are you saying Marlon's not a giving actor? Isn't that like one of the things that like actors say like that, like when they compliment another actor, they're like, he's such a giving actor. Like you're saying that he's like so focused on what he's going to do, but he's going to do so remarkably well that it's almost like he doesn't care because he wants that sort of instant shock reaction from the person in front of him. Like I wouldn't feel safe as an actor working with him. Like I feel like he's reckless. He'll take you down with him. So for me, I don't know that I'd feel safe in a scene with him. I think there were uh, there are instances in his later career where actors didn't feel very safe with Marlon on the set. Uh, but I mean, that was uh, th those are for some other reasons, but. Yeah, there is this sort of like wild bull energy from Marlon Brando, specifically in the film that you just can't look away from. Like, but I think for this particular film, because of the way that it's set up, you know, at the beginning where he's he's kind of led Joey to his demise unwittingly, it tortures him. It hangs over his soul. And at the beginning of the movie, it's like he almost doesn't want to admit it to himself. But then as we go along and it starts to kind of tear away at him, especially as he gets you know, more and more involved with his sister, there is this sort of like push and pull. It's like you're watching someone, someone's soul try to like rip apart from the inside. I mean, that's, I think, one of the reasons why like warts and all, he's still legendary actors to watch right now, even, you know, years after he's you know, made a performance because it's just like this, you see it in his eyes. You see this sort of like, this torment and and you're right it's like unpredictable it's explosive energy but that's what makes that such a, a wonderful movie to rewatch, especially now as, as as an older person to like understand like what kind of a situation that is for that person to be in he really like captured it this like sort of tortured anguish you know that things were prepared but there's like a spontaneity to it and he is very natural on camera and they would say that he would have conversations with his co-stars on camera even after they said action just about like what'd you do this weekend to try to keep like that vibe in it to keep the natural talking vibe going you just kind of put two and two together in my head as you were describing that of like what marlon brando's real life upbringing was because basically until he found acting and discovered he was good at acting he was kind of a bum. He was kind of a fuck up. And that's like what he's playing in this film. Someone who could have been special, but like couldn't quite do it and is now just at the bottom. And I mean, Marlon Brando was expelled from school. He was put into military school and was almost expelled from military school as well. Like he was just constantly messing up. But then once he found acting, he was kind of like, that was the first time in my life I was hearing good things about myself. And so it's almost like the journey of the character. Um, so it must have been very personal as well. It's such a one of a kind performance. And to your point, like, you know, how natural he is, like just his mannerism, just like how he's walking around, like, you know, walking through the neighborhood with, uh, with, with Eva Marie Saint, even down to like how he's holding those pigeons. He just has such a natural presence and a natural feel like he was this character and he was born into this character. And the idea that he has a lot in common with him makes a lot of sense. Well, and he's one of the first like Stanislavski actors on film, right? From the group theater, they're all coming up. Stanislavski, like I was taught that in theater school School 60 years later, you know, like it's still being taught today for a reason because it's a really great way to prepare as an actor. And he that's what he was using for this. So it, he's one of like the earliest Stanislavski actors on screen, which accounts for like his new style. Like this would have been a newer style of back then. This would have felt very fresh and like something we hadn't seen before his performance in this. And he, he's very visceral. That's like the things you're describing. Like he's a visceral actor. It's like he puts his whole soul and whole heart into things. You can see that. 
I wonder, you know, going back to like when we're talking about like what audiences must have felt watching this movie. I wonder how audiences reacted to this performance having been fed a diet of, hey, hey, see, you know, like it's a mystery, you see, you know, like not that that, that was every act, acting job, like, you know, from the 40s and 50s, but there was a lot of that still, you know, happening in, in, in the 50s. People who would have seen this would have probably seen like a lot of the noirs of the 40s and the noirs were getting there with the acting, with it being a little more natural. So I feel like people that would have liked this and would have seen this would have been people that would have seen those things. But the other movies that were big in 1954 were like White Christmas and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which I love both of those movies, but it's like they're so different. They're so opposite. So I feel like this just would have been like everyone seeing Parasite last year and going like, oh my God, this was incredible. It hit me in a weird place. I don't know how I feel about it. It's brand new. It's so different. I feel like this would have been like that where people could recognize how cool and different it was, but might've liked it or not based on their opinions. I think everyone agreed like, oh, this is cool and different, but maybe there were people that were like, that's not for me, or I didn't like how it made me feel, or maybe it's too violent. We do know the film was a huge hit. This movie won they won the Best Picture Oscar, Marlon Brando won Best Actor, Eva Marie Saint. This is her first film. She wins Best Supporting Actress. Elia Kazan wins Best Director. Uh, I think it had 12 nominations total. So it did really well at the Oscars, which tells us that it was probably pretty widely and well accepted. Um, but you're right. I don't know how people would have reacted, but I bet the people that wouldn't have liked it would have been the people that were like, and White Christmas it is. I've always been interested in like how people react to great movies when they see them. Was Brando like a household name at this point or was this the movie that made him a household name? That's a really good question because I don't technically know if he would have been a household name, but he had like movies under his belt. So like Streetcar Named Desire probably would have made him a household name because, you know, he did that on Broadway and then they made the movie. And I feel like the movie wasn't as big of a hit as they wanted it to be, but he still made a name for himself. I mean, we still yell Stella. So I feel like yeah. that would have been his big break. But I think this was what like cemented him. Because I mean, after that he does, he does this movie called Viva Zapata, which is not a good movie. <laughs> it's a, have you ever seen that movie? Uh, no, but I'm familiar with how uh, yeah, wildly racist it is. Yeah, it's racist. They basically brown face him. And it they looks him. terrible. They give him the Heston and Touch of Evil treatment. It's bad. Like, it's really, it's offensive. It's bad. It's not a very good movie. Anthony Quinn won an Oscar, I think, for it. <laughs> and um, there are puppies in it. So I think those are probably the only two good things about Viva Zapata. So he does those. And then this is kind of like, after all of that, this is the big, like, ah, Brando. Like, there were times when I was watching this where I almost felt like he was doing a Marlon Brando impression because we it's so iconic and we've seen so many people kind of copy that that, you know, you forget this is the first time this was the big thing. One of the few performances that I watch of his where I, I feel like I understand why people quote it. He's, he's realizing at that moment that his brother's going to sell him out and he's reminded of the fact that his brother is the person who basically cut short his boxing career, who said, hey, kid, it's not your night, you know? He has that look of devastation. And when he says those words, you know, when he says, you know, I could have been a contender, your heart's getting ripped out for him. It's, it's like heart-wrenching. I can't get over how much it affected me emotionally. I've seen this guy. I've met this guy who had a, a promising future, carved out of nothing. Like, and, and I see The Godfather, and like, I love The Godfather, but The Godfather is like, you know, when he put the cotton ball in his mouth, and and even, I mean, don't even get me started about like Last Tango in Paris or like, you know, any of the later stuff. I really hate Last Tango in Paris. It's probably one of the reasons I started to dislike him was because of that movie. Well, and also he did a lot of dislikable things, I think, on the set. He too, very right? much did. Basically, like, 
there's a rape in that film, an anal rape, and they did not tell the actress about it. And um, it's the way they handle it on set. First of all, I don't think it's a great movie in general. I think it is a masturbatory piece of bullshit. Like, I think men like it. I think it's machismo and stupid and dumb. I don't like it. It's overrated. Yeah, I am not a fan of that movie or how they treated the girl in that movie. Anyway, that's my side rant. (laughs) Sorry to get us the last thing on Paris. (laughs) No, but we had to. I mean, we were going to get there anyway because of putting the 2021 lens on. Um, I just, that scene, that that performance just, uh, yeah, just ripped my heart out. And what I want to point out about that scene too is that up till this moment, Marlon Brando has been piecing things together because he's never really outwardly blamed his brother before. And this is the moment when he's confronting his brother. His brother has given up everything for this mob. Every good thing in his life has gone to this mob so he can survive, so he can have this camel hair coat. Because the brother is not even acknowledging it. The brother's like, you just trained too quickly. You went up too quickly. And it's such a shame that you couldn't make it. And he's like, Charlie, I didn't make it because of you. You were the reason I didn't make it. You can kind of tell the brother has never pieced this together before. So the awakening Marlon Brando has had this whole film to get to this point, his brother has in this car ride. So that's essentially like the sacrifice his brother ends up making is, okay, well, I'll let you out of this cab instead of taking you to your death. Because that's what his brother's doing. His brother is taking Terry to his death. And so in that moment when he decides to let his brother free, it's almost like he's the one giving him the second chance that he should have had in the first place. He's giving him that fight back almost. He dies for him. Can we get a, a shout out to Rod Steiger for a second? Because those two scenes back to back, the scene where he's at the, the union office where he, he's basically told like, you know, either get your brother straight or we're gonna go kill him or you're gonna go kill him or we're, we're gonna have him killed. The way that he acts that scene where it's just like, basically like, I can't do it. Don't don't make me do it, you know? And that was, that's gut-wrenching. Well, and the tension in the room, the way it's shot of everyone looking away and cutting to each person, like, what's he going to do? What, the suspense that they build up through that and the importance they give that moment through the, the faces of the other men in the room. That tells us how scary that is. And how dismissive they are of him as he's wrestling through it. And then they could just go back to like, who are you going to bet in the horse race? But then, you know, he makes this choice in the car to pull the gun out on his brother. To protect him. He wants to save his brother's life. That's in his mind. Like, take this deal. They're going to kill you. Like, you need to take this deal. You're important to me. That's what I think he's saying with that gun. I just thought that was wonderfully well done. Oh, and the hanging of the hook. when they So they kill the brother and he's shot. And to show Marlon Brando it's done, they hang his body by the longshoreman's hook from his fancy expensive jacket. And you're like, whoa, the hook is in you. This movie was almost called The Hook. Arthur Miller was originally writing it. And he was calling it The Hook. And then his whole thing happened with Ilya Kazan. We'll get to it. But yeah, this movie was almost called The Hook because it's kind of a metaphor for both things, like the longshoremen yep. use the hook and then they're all hooked. They're stuck. The mob has their claws into them. Also, uh, really chilling how like he looks hung up, you know, when he's hung there. It's really gritty. I'm sorry I keep going back to this, but like if I'm sitting here in 1954, I'm think, I'm, I'm watching trailers for White Christmas and then all of a sudden I'm watching On the Waterfront, I'm a little shocked. Since it, violence specifically was mentioned in like reviews and critiques of this piece, like yeah, I bet it would have been shocking to see at the time. Although again, I think you go into a noir with a noir mindset. And so this is more of like an epic kind of film. It's not really a noir. So I think it might have had a larger audience, a more general audience. And so, yeah, I bet you that there was shock in that, especially how much blood there is in this movie. There's a lot of blood and there's a lot of people being beaten up that you don't normally see beaten up. 
um, like violence towards the kind of person that you don't see violence towards, like violence towards old men, violence towards women, sort of. They try, it doesn't really go great. Normally it's like mugs, people fighting in an action film, but it's rarely like an elderly man just getting clobbered. How they do Dugan, like, you know, with the with the crate of Irish whiskey, like, that's also pretty, like, cold-blooded, too. You see it coming, but he's also this guy who, like, he, he makes this move to step out of the shadows, and Carl Malden is the priest who's wonderful, by the way, like, pledges solidarity with him to say that if he goes there, that he'll go there, too. And then for him to get, like, off like that. It's an intense movie. It is. Well, but can we just, for one second, talk about Carl Malden, the priest, who comes from such a place of privilege that I actually got a bit annoyed. Like, so the worst thing that happens to him in this movie is someone throws something at him. He gets crap on him and he's like, oh, and I'm like, you are not getting beaten like these men are. You are not in physical bodily harm. There's this privilege to him that I found a little bit obnoxious this time when he's like, really? You all are going to stand for this? And I'm like, yeah, you don't have any skin in the game, dude. You've got your job. You're safe. You're fine. Like these men are in poverty. They're in debt up to their ears because they have to borrow from this shark lender from the mob to even like survive. They don't see a way out. And so I just thought it was real rich of him to be like, none of you are doing anything. And I was like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Don't blame the poor people. Like, go out and get some damn help. And while we're at it, this is another side note that pissed me off so bad this viewing. Those stupid cop slash criminal investigators who do not protect their witnesses. Your witnesses keep dying and you do not protect them in any way, shape or form. And you actively seek them out in front of groups. He kept going to Marlon Brando in front of other people. And I'm like, you're terrible at your job. They don't protect their witnesses till after they've already testified. And I was like, have you not seen Sister Act? Whoopi Goldberg needed protection before you dumb, dumb dummies. That was impassioned. I love it. I think witness protection is, that's like a, a, a byproduct of like all of the shit that just happened here in the 50s and 60s. But you're right. Like there has to be some sort of like street smarts from the cops to say like, you know, I'm not going to out the one guy who's trying to testify against this guy. If I can go back to um, Carl Malden. He's not a terrible character. I just felt like he had a whole lot of privilege and was being kind of judgmental. And I was like, sir, you have not walked a mile in their shoes. And I can't believe I'll, I'll make this counterpoint. Like I think back then, like as a man of the cloth, He's trying to inspire that whole speech that he gives him when he's with uh, Dugan's body. And he's he's telling these people that, like, it was tough for Jesus Christ to come out and, you know, like, speak truth to power. But he did and he got crucified. And he was talking about, you know, this is a crucifixion. Like, that was, like, crazy powerful for me. Because you don't see men of the cloth saying that now anymore. Religion, I think it's safe to say that it's not as important in daily life today as it was back then. And for a priest to stick his neck out there, to, to be out there with those longshoremen, when he keeps saying things like, this is my church, and, and he's pointing to these dead bodies, like, that to me was incredibly powerful and delivered by Carl Walden, who is one of the better character actors that we've ever had. I, I My first introduction to Carl Malden was with those American Express commercials that he used to make in the 1980s where he was like hawking traveler's checks. And then I think he, I think I discovered his, his, his body of work after that. I was like, why is the American Express guy in a... TV show, I, I just remember like seeing him and, and discovering what a great actor he was. And I was like, oh, the American Express guy can act. I get what you're saying about the, being judgmental. I just think that it was like, he, he's coming from a place of like, you know, you guys, Jesus did all this stuff and you guys are just like, you know, turning a blind eye. And he did prove himself as a character, I think, because he does end up sticking with them and keeping his word. Because I think in the beginning, you're afraid that he won't. When trouble comes, you're afraid he won't have their back. And he definitely has their backs. 
He has the best intentions. He has everyone's back. I think I always get a little itchy about religion stuff too. Just just being like raised Jewish and having, you know, many people tell you you're going to hell throughout the years and you're like, oh my God, get away from me. Uh, you know, just having that, I'm always a little bit like, ooh, about it. But he has one of the best lines in the whole film in that speech. Like, that's a very important speech. And the line that I love in it, you're making the love of a cushy job more important than the love of man. And I was like, yeah, that's that's what's happening here. That's the situation. We touched on this earlier, how it's so relevant kind of to what's happening now, how the rich are so rich. They choose their own comfort over everything else. They do not pay their fair share in taxes. And we've deregulated everything like so much so that these billionaires are making so much money and everyone else is just kind of in poverty or like lowering down the ranks. It's shocking to watch. It's something I didn't understand maybe like a decade ago that I very much understand a lot more now. And I, I really hope that we we are like them and we go to work and we change it. You see it right now. And that's a sad reality for a lot of people. And it's another reason why this movie is so relevant still to this day. Like there's always oppression. There's always somebody who's trying to stick it to the little guy. They're trapped. You see based on that cattle call sequence how Every day, the mob chooses who works. And when they don't want to choose anymore, they throw the dimes or whatever, those little tokens, out um, so that the men have to scramble and fight for them. And the man who has just lost his son, who's an older man, does not even get a token, so he can't work that day, so he doesn't get paid. And he had to just borrow money from the mob boss to pay his bills. He's back in interest with that money already. So they're all up to their teeth with the mob. There's no extra money. Dugan has that line about, I've been doing this job for 30 years and I'm poorer than when I started. They're pillaging from these people and these people are trapped. And you see this, oh my God, through the imagery of like the jail, there's constantly gate imagery, constantly. We see through behind the pigeons, we're always behind a gate. There's constant gates all around them to show us how trapped they are. The greed scene, because you were talking about operating from a place of fear. It's like, there's clearly two mindsets here. There's the people that work for the mob that operate from fear and lack. And that is like the patriarchy all up in there. That one part where the guy is withholding money from Lee J. Cobb. The scene that sticks with you is when he's ripping the money from the man's jacket. And I was sitting there going like, that's like <laughs> the billionaires. And not just the billionaires. That's like certain people making laws right now, today. And that's incorrect. And then you see like Eva Marie Saint's character whose philosophy is like, aren't we all the same? Shouldn't we all love each other? Like they just operate from different headspaces. And it's like the people that are so greedy and after the money right then are just thinking short term. They have no long term idea of how to build something beautiful. And they would probably actually make more money if they went the long term route, but they're so like obsessed with power and greed and money that they can't see that far. And it's all about like fear and keeping everybody in line and power. They repeat their own lies to justify the things that they do. Like that whole scene, they're talking about like, we got a right to do this. They're basically like going through all of the reasons why it's their right to like rip off from the union. It, that's what people do now. They justify their awful behavior by repeating the lie to themselves that they have a right to this or somebody else was going to do it or blah, blah, blah. And Lee J. Cobb just like personifies that. He's a, such a great actor too. And he won several like Tony Awards. And I, I think, is he a great stage actor? I think so, but I never looked up his award stuff. So I actually don't know his awards. He's an excellent theater actor, excellent film actor. 
like prolific. He doesn't get the recognition that uh, a lot of other actors do because I think he dissolved himself in a lot of these roles. His performance is toe to toe, I think, with Brando's because he's like this villainous figure that you're just like, oh God, you're awful, Johnny Friendly. He's awful but complicated just like Brando is. He's not just a straight up villain. The first scene we see of him, we almost like him for a minute. He's in that room with all the men and they're kind of joking and they're watching a fight. But he he just goes about his business. He's like washing his hands, laughing, and he's got charisma. So at first, before we kind of completely understand how evil he is, because we understand very quickly after that because of how things go down with the money and how he starts to treat the people around him, we start to see that more. But right off the bat, just him, we're very intrigued by him. He's not just your normal I'm evil guy. He's an I'm evil guy that's got a backstory. His neck was literally slashed open. He's got the scar from that. And he held it together and ran after those guys that did it. And and this is when he was a kid. And he, he gives the whole, like, I picked myself up by my bootstraps. I was poor. And now I'm the richest in town. And no one's going to take that away from me. And there are other ways. <laughs> he was the original Willie Loman. Um, and that was a 1949 play. And Ilya Kazan directed it. Well... You know how when you buy Death of a Salesman, when they make you get it for school and you open it and you see the cast list and you forget it? Now I'm like seeing his name on the cast list. Total aside, whenever I think of Death of a Salesman, I think of Kevin Klein in Soap Dish doing the dinner theater performance of it. Which my grandma totally would have seen. Like she totally went to those things and she totally would have seen it. Something we haven't talked about yet that I think is incredibly important that we have to talk about is the director, Elia Kazan. So Elia Kazan... Prolific, you did say earlier how you thought the music was a little heavy-handed, and that's actually, Ilya Kazan himself was like, whenever they criticize me, it's because they say I do a little too much. Um, and he's like, but I just can't help it, and sometimes it's necessary. So I think that that's part of that. Like, sometimes a little too much. He was with Leonard Bernstein. He's like, Lenny, I need more. More drums! More strings! So yes, Ilya Kazan. He is Greek. His parents come to America when he's, I don't remember how old. So he was really young when his parents came. Um, so he's an immigrant, like Frank Capra, like a lot of directors. He went to Williams College, went to Yale School of Drama. He was an actor before he was a director. Gets involved with the group theater, which is incredibly prolific. I can't do a whole thing about it, but look it up at home. I had to learn all about it in theater school, and I'm so glad I did. Anyway, so he works with all these really infamous group theater people. He realizes through them he's not a great actor, and he should just maybe stick with directing. Like, that's where he finds himself. He's an excellent director, and he directed the plays we just talked about, like Death of a Salesman. That's probably the most iconic play ever written. He directed the original. Same with Streetcar Named Desire. And he was in Waiting for Lefty by Clifford Odets. He starred in that, so he did act in some things that were good. And they were saying he made issue films, like Gentleman's Agreement. The issue of anti-Semitism, we're gonna talk about it here. On the waterfront, the issue of, like, corruption, we're gonna talk about it here. Who's, like, the modern-day issue director? Because I'd love to know who that person is. In my mind, it was, like, Oliver Stone. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> yeah, were you in Vietnam? Were you gonna make a movie about it? So, okay, this is, like, the big thing about Ilya Kazan. He testified in, like, 1950 or 1951 as a friendly witness for the House of Un-American Activities Committee. We've talked about that a couple times on the show, which is basically it was a witch hunt to find communists and communist propaganda in Hollywood, and it ruined the lives and careers of many people, and it was completely preposterous. So yeah, he, he named names of people and was essentially involved in harming the careers of several people that were his friends. And there were people that named names, but he was really remembered for this. 
And Orson Welles had a great quote about it. Orson Welles basically said, like, I don't got a lot of respect for this dude. This dude names names and then makes a movie about why being an informant is good. No, thank you. So that was kind of the idea. This movie is about, like, we're on the informant's side. It's important that he speak up. We need him to speak up. And so it's almost like Elia Kazan, even though this was all based on real events that actually happened in real life, it's like Elia Kazan kind of probably is more connected with this because that's what he did. He named names of the House of American Activities Committee. And like it really did follow him for the rest of his career. And even when he won his Academy Award in like 1999, half of the audience made a point of not standing up for him and not clapping. Um, and it was kind of split. Like Warren Beatty and Meryl Streep, I think, stood up. And like Amy Madigan. And I forget who else did not. And yeah, it's because they were upset about what he had done. And even his granddaughter, you know the actress Zoe Kazan? You, do you know her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So they asked her about this on Fresh Air. Terry Gross dared to ask her about this. And Zoe Kazan was basically like, look, I don't talk about this, but you're Terry Gross, okay. And she was like, it's very hard for me because this man was my grandfather and I loved him very much as a person. And it's hard to put those two things together of like not agreeing with, with what he did, not liking what he did, but loving this person. And she's like, so for me, it's very complex. And I appreciated that response. Terry Gross is American treasure. She's fantastic. Yeah, she is. And I did love that. So I was like, I'm only doing this because you're Terry Gross. That's kind of what followed him as a shadow for the rest of his career. And he still has a prolific career, but um, he can never escape that. And he's kind of like what they do to Marlon Brando in this, where they turn their back on him. That's what a lot of people did with Elia Kazan. And to him, when he talks about it, he's like, I feel like I was just put in a shitty situation. Like, there was nothing I could do one way or the other. And then other people are like, yeah, a lot of people didn't name names. You could have not named names. And he's like, well, I didn't know that at the time. Maybe it all ties back to the fact that he knew that he wasn't a good actor. And so he couldn't really sort of sit there and lie and be like, well, I don't know who it is. You know, not, not that that's how Elia Kazan spoke. And he named one of his, like, best collaborators and working partners, and that's what's heartbreaking, too. Like, he named Clifford Odets, and I guess he says, Elia Kazan says, that Clifford Odets was supposed to say his name, too. Like, they had, they had agreed to trade, but that didn't happen. But yeah, he, like, he called out people who, like, were his actual friends. Um, so that's the other kind of part of it. He sang like a canary, if you will. He wasn't D&D. Those are the worst choices I've ever heard, by the way. Deaf and dumb or a canary. There's nothing in the middle. I know. And D&D, I got it at the beginning. And then like in the middle, I was like, D&D, I, I started getting lost. And I was like, Dungeons and Dragons? It seems really out of character for the longshoremen to do this. But okay. I mean, maybe they've got dice. Who knows? I had to bring that up. I think it informs it so brilliantly. Like when you understand the context of this movie, it adds a whole other layer. Because if you were watching this movie without knowing that Elia Kazan saw himself as like... I'm being punished for informing. Like it definitely puts everything in the, into a different light, for sure. I mean, it's it's, it's eye opening. I I had no idea. That's crazy. Well, and that's the Arthur Miller thing. He so he was originally in talks with Arthur, Arthur Miller to make this. So like the fiction of the story isn't real. Like there was no prize fighter. There was no love story. None of that. But like there was an informant that was a longshoreman that spoke out against his bosses, and it happened in like I don't know if it was Hoboken. I, it was a similar town to where this was. And the guy was actually pissed and he ended up suing the studio because he's like, oh, you took my life story and you didn't pay me. Thanks. And then Arthur Miller was in talks to do it. HUAC happened. And then he was like, screw you, Elia. I'm out. No more the hook for you. Bud Schulberg came in and then was like, I got your back. And he did a great job. The script is great. The arcs work. The symbolism works. 
Oh my God, we haven't even done the symbolism. When I watch movies, sometimes I become an empty vessel. Like it's only in my later years with like, I think poorly written movies where I try to pick it apart. But when, when I'm enraptured with something, I just kind of like shut down and I'm just like, I'm watching this and I'm just like being absorbed with everything. And then like, you know, two or three views later, like, and then, you know, when someone smart like you, like says, uh, you know, points out all the symbolism, I'm like, oh, this is cool. And then I like pass it off to my friends. But I still miss stuff too. There was something last week where Nick was like, did you notice this? And I was like, not until you said it. And I took copious notes. Did you notice that the pints of beer are very small? That's all I noticed. I was like, these are incredibly small beers. Some consistent things that are brought up in this film. One. We've got the jackets. We'll get to the jackets because I want to get to that second because more importantly than the jackets, we've got the fighting. I love that Marlon Brando's arc is basically like, okay, I lose a fight for the wrong reasons and it's bad. And then I lose a fight for the right reasons and it saves the day. And like, that's his arc. Fighting is a theme. Boxing is a theme. Also, just another detail, when he's fighting Lee J. Cobb, Lee J. Cobb is doing like, terrible things like slamming the door on him and the like he's fighting unfairly whereas Marlon Brando is like doing his boxing rules and you're like oh he's fighting fairly of course the mobster is not fighting fairly stop box fighting him stop doing like the old-timey like fisticuffs type thing put him up put him up yeah because he's fighting him like a boxer and then Lee J. Cobb is like screw you boxer door door on your face door on your arm the first time we see Lee J. Cobb it's they're watching a boxing match on tv um, so like the idea of boxing is constantly present and it is like the arc of Marlon Brando's character and everything does get solved by losing a fight, which is just brilliant. Like, I really love that. So yeah, fighting, that's awesome. Fighting is not awesome. Fighting as a metaphor in this <laughs> the film. The symbolism of fighting symbolism. in this film is poetic and beautiful. Because even by the end, I was like, oh, Marlon Brando, just listen to Eve Marie Saint. You don't need to do this. You guys can like go away and be happy together. Their relationship unless there's a long passage of time that is unspoken during uh, during this film, it's very recent. They've known each other and they've like hung out with each other for maybe like days or weeks. It's not like years, right? And so when he gets into trouble, she's like, let's go away together. And like, they've known each other for two weeks. Like I was like, You're, aren't you gonna be a nun? No, she's not. No, she's gonna be a teacher. She's not learning to be a nun, but she is being taught by nuns. I get confused just because she's been hanging out with the priest. She's kind of wearing like, she's wearing like sisterly clothing. It's very, she's very changed. It would have been funny if you're like, she's wearing black and white. Although I did get annoyed when she tried to start looking pretty and wear her hair down. And I was like, girl, just look like you. If you want to keep your hair in that super cool barrette, keep your hair in that cool barrette. You don't need to look good for anybody. You do it for you. How about when she gets out of the bar when like, you know, Brando's trying to, you know, feed her beer and then she gets out and like this crazy wedding's breaking out and it's like, it breaks that into a fight. Like what's going on at this wedding? I was stressed out for her. I hate that she does like need a lot of rescuing um, cause she could not have gotten out of there without him. I also love that he like pushes her into a bush when they're dancing so they can kiss. He's kind of like, come into the bush with me. But it was romantic, I mean. It was, despite like it's present day cringiness. There's a lot of chemistry between the two and it doesn't feel forced. It does feel like a genuine connection. 
between the two. Although there are like those moments where she's like, oh, I need rescue from this like crazy wedding that's like, you know, all of a sudden there's like a bar fight. I can't get out of the wedding. Well, because for a minute you're, you are as an audience like, what the hell? Are, first of all, are they at Johnny Friendly's? Did he take her to Friendly's? Okay, good. He didn't. Second of all, like, what is this? Why are they behaving this way? Kind of felt like he took her to like a nice bistro that Johnny Friendly also owned that was like adjacent to his dive bar. It's like Johnny Friendly's Olive Garden. Like, it's like the fancier version of his. Exactly. You got Johnny Friendly's McDonald's and Johnny Friendly's Olive Garden. Pick your poison. But yeah, that was really funny. That's when he tries to put the gum in her mouth. He's like, good thing I rescued you. Put this gum in your mouth right now. But yeah, I, I liked Eva Marie Saint. Yeah, Raised by Quakers. Her other big famous film is North by Northwest. Um, she did a couple other things. Like she was in Raintree Country and Exodus. So the reason she was chosen for this role, it was supposed to be Grace Kelly. And Grace Kelly no turned way. it down. Yeah, she turned it down to do Rear Window, which was the same year, which was a smart choice. Wow, what a choice. It's not like Tom Selleck turning down like Raiders of the Lost Ark to be a Magnum P.I. It's like, well, I mean, that's good, but you, you probably should have picked Indiana Jones. Like, this is kind of like Rear Window or On the Waterfront. They're two classic films. Like, which one? That's a fascinating tidbit. A completely different movie, though, I think. And it showcased her better, I think. Because this would have been, I don't know, this is kind of a smaller part than Rear Window. And yep. it doesn't, like, show what Grace Kelly could do, like, what she was known for, essentially. Um, this would have been closer to, like, her performance in High Noon, I think. And it would have shadowed her. I don't think it would have given her, like, her big breakout. Um, so I think she chose right. And then Eva Marie Saint, it ended up being between her and Elizabeth Montgomery, um, like, Bewitched Lady. Bewitched? Yeah. Wow. And they picked Eva Marie Saint because um, they felt like Elizabeth Montgomery kept coming off as too polished. And Eva Marie Saint is, like from New Jersey. She went to college in Ohio and she kind of reads more as this like, I could be a girl who lives in this town. You know, like she's beautiful. Daughter of a blue, daughter of a blue collar, you know, longshoreman. She has that vibe. Whereas like, I guess Elizabeth Montgomery, they were like, she's too polished. We don't believe that she's this, you know, salt of the earth kind of person. And was this her first film role? This was her first film role. And that's kind of misleading because she had done TV and radio and things like that before. So it's not her like first time ever acting, but yeah. it is her first film ever. And she won an Academy Award for it. Like, that's cool. Right out of the gate. When you say introducing Eva Marie Saint and having her, like, that's her film, first film role, but she's been in other things before. It's kind of a little bit of a cheat, but kind of looks cool. It's marketing a little it bit. Do, you know? It is. It do, and it makes her sound incredibly impressive, um, which she is. She's a good actor. She is a very good actor. And she's still alive today. Yay! Yay! Um, yeah, but she's great. The other big symbol is jackets. We learn so much from jackets. So if you work on the dock, you wear a windbreaker or a flannel, and that's your jacket. And if you're a cop, a terrible detective who's so bad at your job, you wear tweed. And if you're in the mob, you wear a very fancy coat. And it's probably going to be long, and it's probably going to be camel hair, and it looks real classy. And so that's how we can tell who everybody is. They all kind of have this uniform. And then the significance of Joey's jacket. So Joey is killed. Joey has this nice new jacket. It is given to Dugan, who is my favorite character in this piece because he's such a smart ass and I love a smart ass. He's got so many great lines, just like one after the other. You're like, oh, you're brilliant. Like when they're like, they say something to him, like, are you, a, are you a wise guy? And he's like, if I'm a wise guy, I wouldn't have been a longshoreman for 30 years. Okay. Like <laughs> he's just so funny. So smart. He's great. I also kept calling him Humphrey Bogart lookalike. He's like, if Humphrey Bogart didn't quite make it, 
that's who this man is, I think. He's like baby bogey. Yeah, exactly. Like bogey light. That's what I was picturing. So Joey had this jacket who it's given to Dugan and Joey was going to inform and he didn't get the chance to because he was killed. Dugan sort of informs. I don't know why his testimony isn't counted just because he's dead. Like he still gave a deposition, but whatever. Dugan gets beaten up at the church just for going to the church and listening to a meeting that didn't even like bring about anything. And he gets beaten up really badly. And that's when he has the beautiful moment with Carl Malden where he's like, look, if I stick my neck out, I'm going to get it chopped off. Like you've got to stick yours out too. He's wearing Joey's jacket. Every Everyone who wears that jacket sticks up for themselves and they die or they yeah. get the shit kicked out of them. <laughs> so it's a very symbolic jacket. That was a great scene, by the way. It was a beautiful scene. I, I'm sorry I haven't talked about the father enough, but I just feel like he's kind of there to be like, I am clearly a moral compass i am a man of the church and i care about this community more than the other father who doesn't give a shit like i'm showing up at the dock because eva marie saint told me to in the opening scene because like the other priest is not a great guy he's like no D D man D D. but this other priest is like oh eva marie saint woke me up in the beginning by saying i'm just waiting my church for people to show up i gotta get out in the world and help oh yeah you're right and then yeah and then he goes out in the world and like tries to help it's necessary but the dad's great too, because the dad hitting rock bottom is, he has just lost his son and he can't even get a damn medallion to get to his job and get paid. And he has, no, like his wife has died, his son was murdered, he has to pay for his daughter's college. Yeah, he was saving. He's so old. He's not actually that old. He just looks so sad. True story. I, I did my research. That actor was 27 years old when he read that. People just looked a lot older back then. Well, you know, the life, the life wears you down. That character struck me as just kind of like, I don't know, not one note, but like he was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm your dad and I'm going to protect you. And like all this stuff was put upon on me. I just felt like it was, uh, it, it was uh, Dugan. It was all these other characters that kind of stood up and like said something that did something. It, even to, I'll, I'll just call him Carl Malden, not the father, so we don't get, or the priest. What's his name? What's his What's his name in the movie? I didn't even write it down. I didn't even bother. It was Father something. Father Malden. Father Malden. Wait, I didn't even get back to the end of the Joey jacket. But the end of the Joey jacket, the significance in the end is that, so Marlon Brando wears this like beat up flannel jacket the whole movie. It's got holes in it. The scene before, he's gotten it all bloody because he had to punch a hole. It does a whole thing. So the last scene when he shows up at the dock and he's going to have the fight, he's wearing Joey's jacket. And it's like, oh, the symbolism. And it's like third time's the charm with Joey's jacket. This time, what Joey was trying to achieve happens. The mob falls. They have no power anymore. And I think it's so interesting that the mob owns the union. That's another weird thing of like, that shouldn't be allowed. That should be regulated. Stephanie was saying the same thing when we were rewatching it. She was like, everyone's got that jacket. It's cursed. Oh, God. In On the Waterfront too. that jacket goes to Goodwill and the person that gets it is like, oh, what a great jacket. And then they get like hit by a car or something. What an amazing pitch meeting that would be if we went in went somewhere and pitched On the Waterfront 2, T-O-O, and it was all about a magic jacket. I would watch that movie on the waterfront too. So yes, you're talking about Father Malden though. Carl Malden. His relationship with Marlon Brando at first is really interesting. Like when uh, Carl Malden's walking out and he's going to go on a walk and and Terry wants to like, you know, tell him a a little bit more about. And then Carl Malden just kind of like dismisses him and says like, you know, like uh, tell it to the other priest, you know, tell it to Father D.A.D. You know, that's a whole turning point, right? For Brando in the movie. Because uh, that's where, like, uh, he, he says, well, you got to tell Eva Marie Saint, like, you know, that you're, you you knew what happened about her brother. By the way, that scene. It's so funny because by our standards today, we're like, okay, that's a little cheesy. But, like, when he, when Marlon Brando tells Eva Marie Saint about what he did, 
um, like his role in her brother's death. We can't hear what they're saying, really. I think we hear one word. I wrote it down, but I don't want to flip to that page because it's a billion pages away. But um, it's told through their faces. We hear sounds in the background that we would hear, like ships passing. There's just all this noise in the background, so we can't hear what they're saying, but we know what's happening because of their faces. And it does not go well. She does not handle the news well. And also, the that's another thing where the priest, like, does not think about consequences. The priest is like, just do, like, this is the right thing. Just do it. But he doesn't think about the aftermath. So he, like, watches that go down. And he's kind of like, well, I guess she would be upset. Oh. He does kind of have this oh shit moment afterwards where he just, like, he turns around. And he's like, oh, that was bad. Also, I was getting, like, major Rocky and Adrian vibes this viewing. That's kind of how it was playing to me because, you know, he likes the pets in that film. But I just, yeah, I was feeling two kind of broken people coming together. That's a really wonderful analogy. And for, for multiple reasons, one, two broken people. Yeah, I, I always think that, can, can I go off on a Rocky tangent here for a little bit? It's one of my favorite movies. I want to say she's not broken technically in this film. She's just unaware of the world. She comes awake and alive, just like Adrian. I wanted to correct myself. But please, I love Rocky. She's not broken, but she's maybe brokenhearted or broken by the death of her brother, right? That's a great way of putting it. Uh, Rocky and Adrian have this sort of relationship, too, where it's just like, you know, two people who can't quite put into words what they're doing, right? They're just kind of messily fumbling about. But there's also the 2021 lens on it where, like, Brando and even Marie Saint are very, like, it's a little cringy, like, like you know, here, drink some beer. Or, like, you know, here, kid, come kiss me. The kiss where he, like, forces her down. You're like, please, please stop. But it looked like the Rocky and Adrian kiss. That's exactly what I was going to say, the Rocky and Adrian kiss, which I can't rewatch now without seeing it and being like, ugh. I just hope that Rock never did it again. Well, in Rocky 2, I really do hate when he's like, we don't use condoms. I'm like, fuck you, Rocky. <laughs> like, that's not safe for your partner. But... Besides that, I do enjoy Rocky. <laughs> Rocky 2 is my least favorite of the Rockies. I really dislike Rocky 2. Like, I like so many of the other ones, and Rocky 2 for me is, like, bottom of the barrel, lower than Rocky 5. Well, it's down there. You just know what's going to happen. It's just macho bullshit. The first one was an underdog. The second one's like, I really am a man. I got my girl pregnant, and I'm going to win everything. Like, it's just stupid. I'm sorry. Not coincidentally, the one that's still on, or the, the, the first one that's still on direct. Didn't put that together. The animals, the kiss, like some things were setting it off. Him being a boxer. I feel like there was one other Rocky comparison that I'm going to remember later, but I'm not remembering now. Who's Polly? The dad. The dad is Polly. The dad and Rod Steiger are simultaneous Pollys. So like Rod Steiger and all of the mob guys are constantly gaslighting Marlon Brando and everybody else. I feel like every time they speak up is down and down is up and they remind me of certain news organizations who just peddle bullshit and lies to control people. But when the brother is like thinking in a loving way that he's giving his brother advice, he's like, those people are no good for you. Like the only two good people that have ever entered his life, the priest and Eva Marie Saint, he's like, they're no good. They're bad for you. They're bad news. He's always saying the opposite of like what's okay. When you had mentioned earlier where they, they were justifying what they were doing, it's like that constant justification of like, no, they're the bad people. The people that don't want to steal and lie, they're the bad ones because they don't agree with us and we're right. But the, the gaslighting that happens from his brother who does, I think, love him, but who is also very messed up himself. He's lost in his own world. He's lost in a, he's lost in a lie. They really turn on a dime on him because like at the beginning of the movie, like, you know, and you can tell like they're, uh, they're, they're kind of like buying him off uh, because of what happened with Joey. And like, he's like, oh, I didn't know this was gonna happen. So they're like, oh, take the, per take the cushy gig. You get, to, what was his job? 
counting coffee bags. You want to be on the top deck, not the bottom deck. Yeah, yeah. And then how they turn on him. The only thing that I'll defend Johnny Friendly about is that let's have a mob guy and you're Brando. And I say, hey, Brando, go to the church and like keep an eye on things, see what they're going to say. And then a melee breaks out. And then one of the people who was at the church is like now turning states on me. And like, I'm going to be pretty pissed. I'm going to say like, hey, you know, the thing that I asked you to do, you failed spectacularly. Now that said, Brando was on the right side of things in, in the sense that like, you know, he did the, the sort of right thing. But like, you know, I can see how Johnny Friendly's a little bit like, you know, get the schmuck out of here. He also does have good clothes. So that's a win for two things, maybe two things we can understand. Two pluses. I'm just saying, you know, I understand. But yeah, he just turns on a dime, like back to the, the lower rung for you and, and well, learn your there's place. There's no loyalty with those kind of people. Like it's all about them. Everything revolves around like me having power, me keeping it. Everything else is based around that. It, you, they're not loyal to anyone. They only serve themselves. They only want loyalty to them. They will not give it back. They will make you literally kill your brother even if they're your number one guy. He was his right-hand man, and he was like, you're going to kill your brother for me, thanks. Well, he wasn't going to kill him. He was going to convince him on the way to a killing. Yeah. His brother was doing what Marlon Brando was doing in the opening scene. He was luring him to his death except his brother was in on it, which makes it extra heartbreaking. Oh, the other full arc symbolism, the Irish whiskey, you had mentioned it earlier. That was a great plot point too, because the two things Dugan talks about, he's like, look, I got a brand new jacket that used to be Joey's. Guess what? I wish we got Irish whiskey coming in. And so <laughs> the one day when there's Irish whiskey, that's the thing that kills him. Um, but I loved the tie-in of those things. And then the 2021 lens too. So the 2021 lens, we started to put it on earlier, but there were a couple more things I wanted to bring in. Um, we talked about how like Eva Marie Saint kind of wakes up the priest with what she's saying to him. Like things are happening out here, get your head out of your ass, like help us. Or if you wanna do good, like get out in the world. Um, and then she kind of has the epiphany that I think a lot of people had, including myself last year, about she's like, once I've seen these terrible things happen, I can't just go back to school and pretend they didn't happen. I need to be here and do what's right. And I think like that's what's been happening the last decade or so. People are just waking up. We're waking up to injustices and waking up to like what needs to change in our society. And so I felt like that was really brilliant for like her and her character arc. Um, and that kind of sets things going for her. I think one of the reasons this movie is timeless is because those themes, they're cyclical, right? Like there are eras that, that it feels like less so and more so. But at the end of the day, in the, in the human condition, there are always villains like Johnny Friendly. There are always tragic figures like Joey and quite frankly, uh, Terry. There are always these everyday heroes like Dugan and, and the priest who step out of their comfort zone and, and do good even at their own peril. It's incredibly timely. And I, I think, you know, in keeping with like the best movies, like their their performances keep you honest. The themes are relevant. And, you know, the suffering working class at the hands of injustice and people who uh, who lie and who intimidate by fear. And, and it takes courage to stand up to that because it's scary, first of all, to have your livelihood threatened, right? And then second of all, it's even scary to have your life threatened. And to do something about it seems almost like too daunting. Right? It seems like, oh, I can't change the situation because what am I going to do? Me, Andre, here you know, in, in Los Angeles, how am I going to change anything that's happening in politics or whatever? But all it takes is one courageous act. And I think that that's 
the lesson here from this movie is that and it's not too late to make that courageous act no matter what you can go through all of these traumas and you can have had a hand in, in some of these bad deeds but i think you can redeem yourself if you make that last courageous decision which terry does the way that he wins is not by fighting like the fighting doesn't solve it it's like the showing up after you've been beaten down the way he saves the day is just walking just walking after being beaten, just like getting up and having the strength to keep going is what saves the day. So it's not like this insanely heroic, I'm the master fighter and I have won. It's like the opposite of that. It's like the thing that we all can try to do, just like having the grit to get back up when you're down and walk through that gate where there are no more bosses. Like there's only the one boss and it's gonna be fair now. We think, we hope. I could see the gate closing and him being like, all right, give me $25. Each one of you. He did not look reassuring. He, he was a very large white man. And you're like, ah, I don't know about that. Especially because remember when the mob, there's like a big mob guy that we never even meet who's back of the head we see. And he's like, friendly's canceled. Friendly's done. We, we had nothing to do with friendly. So he's still operating. This didn't stop that. This will all continue because that will still exist. The final things I just kind of want to pepper in before we do double feature. A lot of times directors in the past there was not a great representation of people of color on screen at all. And every now and then directors that were supportive of integration would do just something small, something very small and include like a speaking black person role where they were not completely demeaned. And there is a black actor in this who is first of all, very handsome. And second of all, he, he has like integral lines. Like he progresses things and is not demeaned. And it, that's great. And um, everyone's close in together, so it's like white people. And there's like another like black man that doesn't get to say anything too. But they're showing integration in the 1950s in some form. And when the person of color speaks, it is not in a completely demeaning way. And in fact, does propel things forward. And he's the one that's like, let's stand up for him. Let's support him. So I did want to call that out as just like, it sucks that that's how movies were back then, where like people of color were completely not included and also demeaned in several ways and roles and that like there was some thought put behind a moment just to have like one positive reflection of a person of color in this film it's not a throwaway role and it could have been a throwaway role but i did want to mention brando's makeup in this i actually like his makeup in this they give him like kind of a scar on his eyebrow and kind of like a, what's that called when you're a boxer and that happens to your eye where it droops well, it's what happens when they when they have to cut your eye open too many times to release the blood when your eye, you know, like it, bringing it back to Rocky. Cut me, Mick. That's where that comes from. I don't know how you were watching it, but I saw it in uh, upconverted 4K and uh, I could see like the makeup. The makeup was per, was pronounced. There were a lot of there were a lot of problems with uh, trying to watch this in some sort of high definition. It was like distracting me where I was like, oh, my God, like Brando's got these two things on his eyes. But. Um, I did like uh, the fact that it was there, that it was present, because I think it adds so much to like his look and feel for it. I appreciated that they put effort into it, and it was a lot better than Viva Zapata. <laughs> yeah, so I yeah I appreciated what they were going for. Oh, I think I mentioned that this was filmed on location in Hoboken, so this was really in Hoboken, and we really see the weather, and I love it. I love it when we see the weather. I just like that you could like see the puffs of breath when it was cold, and I liked that there was real wind blowing and kind of fucking things up sometimes. And that was cool. And the snowy, whatever that was. There's a lot of spitting in the movie. Brando spits a lot. And his little kid gang, the Golden Warriors, they were spitting a lot too. Do you mean spitting by accident or spitting on purpose? Like spitting on purpose, but you know that kind of spitting where it's just like, I'm talking and all of a sudden I, I leak out like a very intentional like rocket shot. Brando does it a couple of times. 
the kid gangsters do it a couple of times. By the way, what cold heart, the kid gangsters with the, at the, I mean. I was like, you're a serial killer. You murdered pigeons with your hands. You're a serial killer. Things I didn't catch the first time that I saw it, that the kid said that Brando started that gang. But then like, they're always there on the roof with them. Like, is he paying them to like keep watch on the pigeon cage? Like, there's a lot of unanswered questions about the Golden Warriors. Well, I thought they were a boxing club. I thought they were boxers. Was it a boxing club? Really? I thought he was saying they're part of a boxing club. But I didn't catch the spit, so I don't know. I just thought it was like a little street gang that they had like a... Oh, I like that almost more though. It's like their own little West Side Story, except for they feed pigeons instead of dance. And they have cool jackets. They spit too. They do the intentional, like the kid version of like the... Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's just like, hey, I'm talking and all of a sudden it's like... I saw Marlon Brando with the gum. I was like, ooh, I like that gum choice, Marlon Brando. But besides the gum, I noticed nothing about the spitting. I noticed sweating. People were sweating. We're sweating a lot. And you notice that also a lot in HD. My only two little wits and wisdoms. What did you get from on the waterfront? You know, they spit a lot. They spit a lot and there was a child gang. But yeah, the pigeons, I did track that. I don't care how mad you are at somebody. You don't go murder pigeons. You could free them. They could fly away. Like, what is wrong with you? Um, Marlon Brando. You know him for being an incredibly prolific actor. He's also very complicated to like and not like. He's got a lot of pluses, a lot of minuses. My personal note about him is, and I quote myself, dude was a wild card and a real weirdo. A woman would never be allowed to behave that way, is how I feel about it. Um, So yeah, Marlon Brando, so incredible on screen. Just captivating, fascinating, also problematic. He was in A Streetcar Named Desire, The Wild One, On the Waterfront. I love Guys and Dolls. He's in Guys and Dolls. Uh, The Godfather, Last Tango in Paris, incredibly problematic, not great, don't waste your goddamn time. And uh, Apocalypse Now. And Superman. Oh, thank God that you said Superman. I was going to point that out. It's on my list and I passed it and I was like, go back. You got to say it. What do you think is the last great Brando performance? The internet told me it's Apocalypse Now and the internet's correct. Talk about problematic on a set. Well, it's like he gets worse over time. It seems like he was kind of more normal in the beginning and then something in his head. It's like success shifted. But then, but he was also an activist. He was an activist who did a lot of good, but also made anti-Semitic comments. He's like all of these things in one human. He's such a weirdo. I have a fun fact about Marlon Brando. He was ahead of his time in terms of ownership of his own rights and likenesses. He actually, and I think to this day, like he owns, you couldn't sell the likeness of, of Marlon Brando after his death. It had to go through like some sort of like Marlon Brando enterprises type thing. He had foresight that people would try to like capture his likeness and then recreate his performance. He's a trailblazer. So Marlon Brando backstory, he was born in Nebraska. His parents were alcoholics, um, but they were like unconventional. And um, I don't think he ever got along with his dad, but he liked his mom. And then um, Brando was expelled from school because he apparently rode a motorcycle indoors. So that'll get you expelled. And then he was shipped to military school. His sisters both were older than him, went to New York, studied acting. One of his sisters actually had a bit of a career. He moved out there to follow them, fell into acting, loved it, worked with Stella Adler, the great Stella Adler, learned about Stanislavski, was not actually a method actor, Although people always think of him as one, and that pissed him off, apparently. And that would piss me off, too, because method actors are douchebags, and you can quote me on that. Hot take. And he was one of the first to bring natural acting to film, as we've mentioned. He dated a lot of people. Um, famously, Katie Harada from High Noon. She's 
awesome. Um, but he dated her. He dated Rita Moreno. Rita Moreno said the sex was amazing. So we know that as people now. He had a lot of affairs, was pretty open about like his sex life. He had 11 kids. He loved Tahiti. He lived there. He beat up a paparazzo and was like charged for it. <laughs> he was at the March on Washington and was like very involved in civil rights. Um, and then he famously had, um, I don't know how to say her name and I'm so sorry, audience at home. Is it Sachin Littlefeather? Sachin Littlefeather? He was part of a Native American tribe and he had her accept his Academy Award. And she didn't even accept it, she refused it. She declined it on behalf of him because, you know, she was like, guess what? Uh, he, he, I have been given the speech from Marlon Brando and you do not treat Native Americans well on film. And also there are a lot of problems going on with my tribe right now. And it actually ended up helping a little, I guess, but was also a little bit, uh, he's always a mix of problematic and not. When you decline an Academy Award, does it mean that like it goes, it didn't go to the next? No, he still wins it. He just doesn't take, he didn't take it home. He didn't take it home. But yeah, so he was just, again, total freaking weirdo. Uh, I'm really not cool with the last tango in Paris and I've never totally been able to reconcile it. We mentioned it earlier. I got a hot take. I'm lukewarm to the works of Bernardo Bertolucci. The Last Emperor, a lot of people love The Last Emperor. Guess who? Love the last number of the pillow that I slept on because I kept the company for about three hours. I applaud you for saying this out loud because guess what? After I saw the last tango in Paris, I was like, oh, we're done here. Boy, bye. I don't need this in my life. No, I don't. Oh, that reminds me. Oh my God. I can't believe I didn't even tell you this. Frank Sinatra was in talks to be that role because Frank Sinatra is famously from Hoboken and his career was in like a lull at this point and he really wanted this part and apparently the rumor has it that he had a soft handshake deal on it. But they really wanted Brando, and they knew Brando would bring in a bigger budget, and they fought for Brando, and they got him. And I guess Frank Sinatra was pissed. You know, listen, you're the chairman of the board. Like, there are very few people you lose out to. They picked Brando over Sinatra, and I guess I get it. It makes sense. Sinatra's not, uh, you know. Well, from here to eternity hadn't happened yet. Like, this is the lull in his career. This is before he's the chairman of the board. This is before a lot. This is like his career's dipping. He doesn't know what to do. So it, it kind of makes sense to me, but he really wanted to be the priest, and they were like, we already signed Carl Malden, who was in Streetcar Named Desire with Marlon Brando, and they had worked together several times before this. We're moving into the double feature portion of this program. The double feature is when I say, hey, if you liked this movie, why don't you check out this movie? It's kind of similar. For me, like the number one double feature would probably be The Harder They Fall. It's Humphrey Bogart. It's written by Bud Schilberg. Same writer. It's a boxing movie about corruption. So it's like your perfect pair with this, that double feature. I wrote down Rocky because I was getting Rocky vibes. Oh, and that's what it was. The Rocky thing of like the underdog not giving up because Rocky's whole thing is he doesn't win the fight, but he doesn't give up. Just like Terry Malloy. So really, Rocky has a lot of similarities. Carl Malden even says it. You know, you, you might have lost the battle, but you can win the war uh, right before he gets up. And then he goes, Adrian. And then, you know, you're like, oh, I guess Rocky really did take a lot from this movie. That was a joke that did not land. And that's okay. <laughs> Um, but the other double features I wrote down, I actually, now that we mentioned it, From Here to Eternity might actually be another good double feature. High Noon, A Face in the Crowd, and Streetcar Named Desire are all things I would watch, but I think the best one is probably The Heart of They Fall that would match it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so nice having you. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Andre Fonseca. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening. <laughs>